Danielle Rodeutchen and this is In Talks With, a series of bite-sized chats about culture from lockdown and beyond. Hi Caroline, how are you? I'm great Danielle, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Good. We are speaking to each other over the internet on the 19th of June 2020 but we're still in the lingering days of the COVID-19 induced lockdown and so it feels more sensible to be speaking to each other like this rather than in person. Yeah I've actually come to my office in in W1 just by Oxford Circus and it's still pretty dead around here which is really interesting to see given the stores apparently have you know opened up again and I've been hearing all these news around lineups outside but I've yet to see that so hopefully slowly but surely uh, our city will wake up. Yeah it's in a really it's a really interesting moment and interesting to see the city in that way. Um, well I think you know we've all like you said we're, we're doing this over the internet and uh, I'm very much looking forward to a, a near point of being able to do it in person because I think while you know Zoom and Skype and all of our wonderful digital platforms have been so helpful it's really shown me how much I miss human contact but um, that'll be happening one day soon I hope. I know I've been speaking to a few people who've said how much that how much creativity relies on the um, physical interactivity and how much they miss that. Um, but back to you. So you're the co-owner and fashion director of Tank magazine, which was founded in 1998, and it calls itself a thing of beauty and permanence in an age of transience. Can you just expand a bit on that? Sure. So we started at the end of the 90s, as you said, um, and it was really one of the first magazines, I believe, to have really pioneered sort of combining fashion shoots uh, alongside cultural criticism, architecture, art, politics, and long-form journalism. And we were termed a, a book zine, a book zine, depending on where you live and how you pronounce it. Um, but it was really, uh, you know, an approach to timeless curation, something that would last and be permanent on your bookshelves. You know, fundamentally magazines, I guess, are, are sort of things that are, um, you know, you peruse them, you flip through the pages, maybe you put them in your recycling bin. Sometimes some collectors and magazine nerds like us, we, we love to collect, but you know, fundamentally, they are a little bit more transient. And so these, this idea of magazine as book and something that would sit permanently on your bookshelf is something that Tank has tried to uphold in its 22 years. And um, yeah, 22 years later, we're still here, we're quarterly. And I think, you know, I've actually never felt more optimistic for independent publishing than I do today. I think um, a real desire for curation and for expertise is actually coming back around. I think experts for a long time were like, ugh, for the last decade, um, shied away from. But actually what we're seeing is, and also what the digital world can never provide, are sort of that, that permanent feeling, the sort of the feeling of that beautiful paper, um, collectability, things that you will 
refer to forever and come back to. And I think it's an exciting time in that sense for independent magazines. It is a um, beautiful physical product, as you say, but it's also um, you've been very successful at creating a sort of multi-platform entity. You, know, you have the website as a beautiful Instagram account, as the podcast. Tell me about Tank TV, which is currently in its second season, I believe. We actually launched Tank TV uh, a good 16 years ago, but in its first incarnation, uh, it was actually one of the first websites that was a moving image gallery, pre-YouTube, if you can believe this. Um, and actually within our history, we've had incredible um, curators who have run Tank TV, Nadia Romain, who's an amazing French curator. And actually for seven and a half years, Laure Provo uh, was our Tank TV kind of curator um, before she quit to focus on her own art and two and a half years later won the Turner Prize. <laughs> so we were, you know, incredibly grateful to have her shepherd video art online. And we hit pause for a while on Tank TV until this past December when we relaunched it um, as a new platform streaming independent cinema. And it's something that we're really excited about because I think it's, um, hopefully offering a real alternative to mainstream warehousing of cultural artifacts. And that is, um, you know, things like Netflix, which uh, we've all enjoyed incredibly, uh, but there is definitely a space for an alternative to that. And given how important I think film is in the cultural domain, I think Tank TV for us is the antithesis to sort of the algorithm and uh, the sort of warehousing mentality that um, streaming platforms like Netflix or Amazon Prime, video, etc. have. So I suppose this idea of a, of a curated feed is great. I mean, it does feel particularly pertinent to now. And there is this sense at the moment of, you know, scrolling through Netflix and just seeing that there's nothing there is there's loads there but there's nothing there um it just you know often it's that weird feeling of having everything and yet there's nothing that you want to watch yeah um, the sort of paradox of too much choice but i think and it's exactly that you know i think last fall we came back after a weekend into the office and we were asking the team, oh, what did you do? And, and somebody on the team said, you know, I spent the entire weekend scrolling through Netflix, trying to find something to watch. And I found that <laughs> the hours wild away as uh, I literally just looked through the menu and the offer and ended up watching nothing. And we started thinking, you know, how is it that um, so many of um, you know, graduates that we interview for even coming on board to the magazine, we, we will we'll refer to some of the films that we're, we've been inspired by. And they'll be like, huh, you know, oh, and, <laughs> and we'll sort of maybe, you know, refer back to like the latest, I don't know, mockumentary on, on Netflix, or that that's the sort of cultural reference these days. And it's, you know, we like to think of it as sort of locking a small child into a library. You know, you have tons of things to go for, uh, pick off the shelf, but 
in fact, without, um, without sort of that process of curation or that idea of kind of editing down to uh, a book list. You know, if you think about colleges, they all have syllabuses and they make you read books in a certain way in order to sort of help your education. And I think sort of the process of enlightenment and um, getting a real understanding of why certain films are so incredibly um, you know, pertinent to the cultural landscape today, how they've influenced others. You know, that's, that's the job of what I think editors today, it's so much more important for us to do. And I think Tank TV for us is, um, whereas Netflix is like a warehouse, we're hoping that Tank TV is more like a gallery and we help contextualize and give conversation as to like why each film that we important and also why, you know, why it's something that you should want to watch just to, if you are interested in, in culture. The multicultural curation, curational aspect of it is, does lead me into my next question, actually. Um, you're originally, you're Canadian. I think you grew up in Montreal yeah. uh, with a Chinese mother and a Lebanese Iranian father. Yep. <laughs> Coming from a racially mixed family, do you feel particularly sensitive to the accusations of racial discrimination leveled against the fashion industry at the moment in particular? I do, and I'm always aware of how perspective um, can be uh, both so personal, but also is so important for representation in this industry. Um, when I was a teenager, Growing up in Canada and growing up in Montreal, I was so incredibly lucky that it was so multicultural, that there were actually so many mixed families. But I was recently kind of thinking back to how, you know, my Chinese mother, both my parents were immigrants to Canada. My Chinese mother was literally the only Chinese person, Asian person, woman of different color to our kind of Canadian white counterparts parts on our entire block. But, you know, they never, they never, taught me that like race was something that I should think about or that I looked different to the kind of, you know, white kids in my class. So I never really thought about it. And because I think Canada is such an incredibly open and welcoming place for immigrants, it was never something kind of at the forefront. I modeled when I was a teenager for a very short period of time. And I spent a summer in Milan when I was 16. And it was there that, you know, I was either too Asian looking or I wasn't Asian looking enough. And I thought, gosh, you know, if I ever go back into the fashion industry, I would love to be able to, one, make decisions, which as a model and as a young model, you don't normally get to make. But two, always make sure that um, we represent a diverse uh, world that we live in. And I feel like Tank, um, the co-founder of Tank, Masuko Sorki, is Iranian-born. Um, and Tank has always had, I think at the heart of it, an outsider perspective that has always brought in outsider voices um, or non-majority voices, voices that you don't normally hear in the mainstream. And I think throughout my 18 years at Tank, it has been rooted in what we do and has been always 
unconsciously, I guess, at the forefront. So I'm really proud that we've always brought in um, voices from around the world. My new issue of Tank, we always do a summer literature issue and one of our guest curators is actually the co-founder of the, uh, the DACA Literature Festival. Um, you know, I just think it's, it's so important for us to, uh, to show that the world is, <laughs> reflect what the world actually is. And uh, I've always been very confident that we've done that uh, from 22 years ago to today. But I know that everybody has a long way to go. And it's exciting for me to see that the momentum that the discussions today being had are leading to actual action from those who have, may not understand uh, or have understood um, that it's important to reflect sort of the diversity of the world. That's a really you, long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, it was a really, it was a really interesting answer. And it, I don't think it was as long as you felt it was. Um, what, when you see what other fashion brands are doing at the moment, do you feel like there is a genuine desire for change across the industry? Or do you feel like there is a slight tokenism or, uh, you know, much of it is simply virtue signaling? Hmm. I absolutely think there's virtue signaling. I absolutely think there's tokenism. I actually, I definitely think that there's a lot of uh, lip service. Um, but I think the time is ripe for action. And I think, listen, everybody is judged on action, ultimately. And I think people don't have as short as memories as uh, people think, you know, at the top they do. I think the brands that show real action are gonna be the ones who have the most loyal customers. And I think each of us have a duty to use our wallet and our consumer power to also support those brands who show uh, that they're making a difference and that they're sort of taking this on board. So we all have the power in our small ways to affect change. And I think we're all gonna be supporting the brands that do this, I hope, um, and letting the brands who are literally just, you know, posting symbolic black squares, but doing nothing to change their management teams from the top down uh, to the representation in their campaigns to, and that's across, that's not only across like skin color, but it's also across age and size and, and, you know, every, every bit of the things that make us different in this world. So I definitely think that we, have a long way to go but i feel like this is in the 18 years that i've been in this business on the publishing side that this is like a great momentum of action now and i very much look forward to seeing how everyone is going to do rather than just say um that's interesting what you just said about it being uh, you know the need for diversity across things other than just race but also across age and size um, and one thing that's coming up recently I've noticed um, is um, this this um, this idea of class um, mm. and how classism has affected the fashion mm. industry but that's something that I've just noticed creeping in and I think maybe that's where the next discussion point will be um, yeah. you say you'll um, you um, you say you'll you support with your wallet but is there anyone that you're that you're particularly proud to support financially when you go and shop on their website? Mm. Well, you know, I think 
in the luxury sector, you know who I think does it really well is Gucci. I think when they get shouted down for mistakes, they come back out and they say, put their hands up and they say, sorry, we're learning, we're going to do. I think the fact that they have set up this Gucci equilibrium, you know, Gucci for me is, is an amazing example of um, in the last six years, really bringing to the core of it. And might I add by two, you know, white males, <laughs> Alessandro and, and Marco, but, you know, have really driven to the core of their brand, getting much more diverse voices into it. And, and I think on the luxury end, Gucci for me is, is fantastic. Another one for me, you know, is Patagonia, weirdly. Um, every time I go to the States, because there's very few Patagonia stores here, I go into a Patagonia because on the sustainability angle, for me, they are like, they are the leaders. It's unfortunate, and I have tweeted about this, that the women's wear is not for kind of design-focused people like potentially you and I might be, because it's sort of shapeless t-shirts and sweatpants and track pants and hiking gear. But I do actually try to buy, you know, I think I bought my one and only fleece from Patagonia. If I'm going to have a fleece, it's going to be Patagonia. Um, and these are the brands that really, you know, are interesting. And, as, and actually recently, um, Pan, Pangea, Pangaya, I'm not sure how you pronounce them, but I, um, you know, bought a sweatshirt and uh, a t-shirt from them, not only for their sustainability, but I also love, you know, their messaging and the people that they have in their campaigns and um, what they're trying to do for basics and sustainability. So, you know, those are three businesses for me that are really interesting right now and that are looking at what it means to be a brand that is socially responsible across so many touch points, whether that's um, race and diversity as well as sustainability. Now, as well as being um, working behind the scenes, as it were, on your, you know, from the business side and on the magazine side, you're also very front-facing in the fashion industry and in that you're regular fixture on the fashion circuit and you're photographed at shows and parties all around the world um you sort of became a sort of um whether it was something you wanted or not i mean i think you sort of became a street style star thanks to being photographed at these events and featured on blogs and so on looking back at that moment now now that these events have momentarily or maybe not just momentarily maybe for for good um now that these events have been suspended how do you feel about that aspect of fashion? Do you think it's something that will return um, or will it have morphed into something else? Is there a fatigue around that? That's a great question. You know, I think now that we are no longer congregating and you won't have all these fabulous editors and women strutting around <laughs> into shows wearing their finery. Um, I'm, I'm, curious and I don't know what the answer is. I think the last 10 years with the explosion of street style and, and therefore what became the influencer kind of market has been fascinating to watch, to be a part of admittedly as well. Um, as you say, not by any means or desire or proactiveness, but by kind of doing my job and going into fashion shows by getting photographed. Uh, while doing so. But I think, you know, style, fashion, so much of that has been opened up globally 
for um, all of us to get inspired by other people and the way that they put clothes together. And listen, I think, you know, fashion is so celebratory. It's so uh, reflect, you know, it's like the best way to reflect who you are, what you represent, you know, your mood. And I think there's such joy in fashion that if we don't get to see how, you know, some of these incredible women dress up, um, I think that would be a real shame. And I think that, you know, Instagram and the algorithm that uh, are, are not as open anymore and allowing us to sort of discover, um, that's a real shame. And I think will impact actually kind of the future of these images and the propagation. Um, but it's incredible to me, you know, I, I always get tagged on a daily basis of some of like my old, you know, eight years ago in front of the Prada show or, and it's incredible how these images are, are still being used or referenced. So I, I don't know what that is because I don't know how we're going to be going to fashion shows anytime soon. And therefore, you know, whether that whole street style business is, is uh, permanently collapsing or just on pause. But um, there is something fun about seeing how other women and men put their outfits together. And I hope that doesn't have to go away. That's really interesting what you mentioned about the algorithm that we're sort of this idea that we're stuck in these echo chambers of our own makings of, of style. Mm -hmm. How do you break out of that? Yeah, I think these days you have to be so proactive and unfortunately go down rabbit holes of, you know, trying to find, um, as you say, outside of the bubble that we get algorithmically forced into. Um, so you have to be proactive. And, you know, it's the same way like on, on you know, Twitter, I follow people whose opinion I really don't agree with, but I think it is important for us to understand, you know, what those who don't share our values or a point of view, how they're thinking about things. And if it gets you mad, then what is actually the response to those perspectives and sort of help internal debate? Because otherwise, if we just follow the people who look like us, who feel like us, sure it's a really safe environment but you know we don't live in a safe environment you need to see what's out there so that's probably more on the political side i think just on the terms of like the style side of like stepping out and seeing how people put things together completely differently i think you just have to be really proactive about searching out those or reading a, a magazine seeing a picture and looking that person up or following somebody new and then seeing who they follow, who you've never heard of before. I think that's really important, actually. And just before you go, um, what's, how has the um, lockdown affected what you're doing at Tank? Um, are, you, have, have you, have you, are there any aspects of it that you've seen as a positive outcome? And how are you pivoting? What's, what's next? Well, I think Tank Magazine, uh, we came out with our summer issue, we're working on our fall print issue. And when we could not shoot in Europe, what we ended up doing was working with our amazing team in China, where everything was open and press offices were open. And I'm surprised more magazines didn't shoot out in China. Um, and it was fantastic. And we got an incredible cover shoot from that. So, you know, we've come up with solutions on a global scale, working with global teams. Again, 
maybe looking outside of, of our own kind of London-based bubble to get solutions. And then Tang TV, luckily, has blossomed in lockdown. I mean, it couldn't have been a better time to offer a, a platform with an alternative point of view, you know, hashtag Netflix, um, when everybody got sick of watching, you know, Tiger King. So um, we've been really lucky in the sense of always trying to look a little bit forward and thinking, you know, we've got this great established and wonderful print magazine, but what else can we offer that is edited and considered and a conversation starter for our community? Um, and I think the next thing that we're hoping to look into is live stream and how that is going to really affect both commerce and brand romancing and storytelling. So um, it's actually been a really inspiring time despite all the anxiety despite all the trauma um, I'm really excited by the the pause it gave on kind of flying to five million shows and press events etc and uh, I'm really looking forward to what what we can continue creating that's that sort of uh, taking the best that we have to offer but for a discerning audience that's great. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, Danielle. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to In Talks With, with me, Danielle Radojcin. The sound and theme music were by Wargie Productions and the artwork is by Patrick War. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to someone who you think might also like it. And of course, please do subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for listening.